going to turn to Joshua chapter 10. And if you're using a church Bible, that's page 224. And the large print Bibles, 344. Joshua chapter 10, and we'll read verses 1 to 27. Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this, because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities, It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So, Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makeda. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them. And more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There's never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Now, the five kings had fled and hidden in the cave at Makeda. When Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Makeda, he said, Roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop. Pursue your enemies. Attack them from the rear and don't let them reach their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. 
So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely. But a few survivors managed to reach their fortified cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. And no one uttered a word against the Israelites. Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. Then Joshua put the kings to death and exposed their bodies on five poles and they were left hanging on the poles until evening. At sunset, Joshua gave the order and they took them down from the poles and threw them into the cave where they had been hiding. At the mouth of the cave, they placed large rocks which are there to this day. This is God's word. In the New Testament, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about the history of Israel, the events that are recorded in the Old Testament. And this is what he says. These things took place as examples for us. Paul is saying something very significant there. He's not just saying we can learn from Israel's history. He's saying Israel's history happened so we could learn from it. He's saying that when God was interacting with Israel, he was not just thinking about Israel. He was thinking of us. As Israel faced dilemmas and needs, as they went through trials... God responded to Israel in such a way that we can read about his dealings with Israel and find help for our situation. These things took place as examples for us. That's amazing. And then Paul goes on to say, these things were written down for our instruction. It's very helpful to understand Paul's point. It opens up the Old Testament to us in a new way. We begin to see it as a book that's genuinely for us. And it's especially helpful to have Paul's words in mind when we come to a passage like this. Because it is a bit of an odd passage. I don't think many of us would turn here if we wanted to share the gospel with someone. I don't think we would turn here if we were feeling discouraged. I have a section in the very front of my Bible that lists helpful passages for various situations. It tells you where to turn in the Bible if you're afraid or anxious and so on. I've looked through that section and Joshua 10 doesn't appear anywhere. But if we accept Paul's words in 1 Corinthians then we know this passage is not just a record of some strange events in ancient Israel. 
It's a record of things that happened for us, for our instruction in our modern day situations. So with that in our minds, let's come back to our passage and see what we find. And what we find is, first of all, the city of deceivers crying for help. And as they cry for help, they find a wholehearted savior. The book of Joshua is about Israel entering into the land God promised them long before, the land of Canaan. Last week we heard about the Gibeonite deception. The Gibeonites were people who lived in Canaan. And they had seen Israel's victories over the cities of Jericho and Ai. And the Gibeonites were afraid, naturally. But instead of asking for mercy from Israel and Israel's God, that was what Rahab had done. And Rahab was granted mercy. She was saved when her city, Jericho, fell. So there was the option to call for mercy. But instead of doing that, the Gibeonites came up with this plan to deceive Israel. And it worked, we saw last week. They pretended to be from a very distant country, outside the land that was promised to Israel. And they tricked Israel into making a peace treaty with them. Chapter 9 made it clear the Gibeonites are a dishonest bunch. And Israel has been the victim of their dishonesty. As Robert put it last week, the Israelites were conned by the Gibeonites. That's the background to this passage. And chapter 10 then opens by telling us the king of Jerusalem is very much alarmed. We think of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, but at this point in time, Israel hasn't yet captured Jerusalem. The king at this time is called Adonai Zedek. And the reason he is very much alarmed is because he's heard about Israel's victories over Jericho and Ai. It seems everyone has heard about them. And he's heard about the peace treaty with Gibeon. Why would that make him alarmed? Well, verse 2 tells us Gibeon is an important city with a good army. All its men are good fighters. They would have been an ally of Adonai Zedek. But now he's beginning to feel alarmed because he's starting to get isolated. Israel has crossed the Jordan already. Here, They've already taken Jericho and Ai on the other side of the Jordan. And now the Gibeonites are no threat to Israel because of the peace treaty. Gibeon is only about six miles away from Jerusalem. So the king of Jerusalem knows it isn't going to take much more progress before the Israelites control this whole central area of Canaan, including the trade routes flowing to other places. This area in the center is the crossroads for all those trade paths. The king of Jerusalem knows if he wants to stop the Israelites, he has to do something now, while he still can. 
Well, he has some allies left. So he decides to attack Gibeon. He doesn't want to attack Israel directly. But if he can get control back of this important city, he might be able to halt Israel's progress, he thinks. So he calls these four other kings to help him, and they join forces together, the five of them. Together, they should take Israel, take Gibeon quite easily. And it's at this point that the city of deceivers cry out for help. Have a look at verse 6. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us. Because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. From what we saw last week in chapter 9, it doesn't seem Joshua has any obligation to save the Gibeonites. He made a treaty not to attack them himself. There's no indication he signed up to defend Gibeon from other people. But look how Joshua responds to them in verse 7. So, Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. The name Joshua means the Lord saves. And throughout this book, it's clear Joshua is acting always as the Lord's representative. When Joshua brings salvation, actually it's the Lord's salvation. And what we see here is that it's the Lord who's going to save Gibeon. He will do it through Joshua and his army. And notice how committed Joshua is to this. He takes his entire army. Verse 9 says he led them on an all-night march. It must have been closer to an all-night run, actually. Because chapter 9 told us, previously it took Israel three days to get from Gilgal to Gibeon. So not only is Joshua bringing his whole army, he's making them leg it. He's taking this with utmost seriousness. He is a wholehearted savior. Do the Gibeonites deserve this? No way. The Lord has already promised Israel all this land. Joshua could let Adonai Zedek and his allies take Gibeonite. Then Joshua could show up later and defeat the coalition. That way he'd get rid of six enemies instead of just five. So this is not any kind of political move from Joshua or from the Lord. This is pure mercy. These deceivers have called on Joshua and his God for salvation They know all about the power of Israel's God and they're putting their faith in his power. Save us. And the Lord responds with mercy. As he always does when people cry for mercy. 
This is not a one-off. This is characteristic of our God. In his letter to the Romans, Paul quotes from the prophet Amos, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the salvation of the Gibeonites is not just an interesting piece of history for those who happen to be interested in history. No, it took place for our instruction. To teach us that frauds and deceivers can still call on God. Trusting his power to save. And they will be saved. Not from attacking armies, but from eternal destruction. The savior Gibeon trusted in was called Joshua. The savior we trust in is also called Joshua. That's his Hebrew name. The Greek translation of his name is Jesus. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's as true today as it was back then. So don't think you are beyond God's mercy. Don't think your colleagues or even your enemies are beyond God's mercy. God has promised to save. And in this situation, that will involve defeating Adonai Zedek and his allies. The main part of that battle is described in verses 9 to 15. And the most striking feature of this battle is not what Joshua and his soldiers do. The most striking feature is the fact that creation serves God's purposes. To us, creation is wild. For all of our technology, a few feet of snow can mess up all our plans still. But what we see in these verses is that creation is fully tamed from God's perspective. In a different context, we've seen that in the book of Revelation. We see it again here. We've already noticed how Joshua and his army march all night. And apparently in the early morning, they hit the five kings with a surprise attack, putting them on the run very quickly. But look at verse 11. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them. And more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. God really doesn't need the Israelite swords. It's very nice of them to want to help. But God has it covered. He has his own weapons. Well, sometimes people get themselves all tied in knots about what happens next. What happens next is that as the battle goes on, Joshua apparently sizes up the situation in front of him. He realizes this victory is only going to be partial if darkness arrives. The retreating armies will slip away under the cover of darkness. And Israel is going to have to face them again another day. So Joshua prays for extra hours of daylight. And God answers his prayer. 
It's pretty clear that is what we're being told. I said people sometimes get tied in knots over this, and that's because they try to explain the mechanics of how this happened. How could God do that? Did he make the earth stop spinning? Those are, I suppose, interesting questions. But the text of Scripture is not interested in those mechanics. The text of Scripture wants us to see what happened and then grasp the significance of what happened. The Bible doesn't give us the mechanics of how God created the world either. It doesn't give us the mechanics of how he raised Christ from the dead. In all those cases, the Bible wants us to understand the significance of the events. And in each case, the significance is God is powerful, completely powerful. And here, in this situation, it's worth realizing the pagan nations worshipped the sun and the moon. But now, as these five pagan armies watch, the God of Israel shows that the sun and the moon are part of his creation. And they do his bidding. Just like the hailstones. So the application here is not, if you pray, maybe you too can get more hours of daylight. No. The application is, the earth is the Lord's. And everything in it. What happens here is not some random trick It's showing us that creation serves God's purposes. Creation may seem untamed to you and me. It may mess up our plans, but it serves God. He can and he does use it to bring his own plans about. Here, creation is his instrument to defeat these five Canaanite kings. And at the same time, to show these kings the sun and moon they worship are under the control of the one true God. Then what happens in verse 16 is that we have a flashback. Verses 9 to 15 have described the main action of the battle. But now we rewind a little to something that happened during the battle. Verse 16 says, Now the five kings had fled and hidden in the cave at Makeda. When Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Makeda, he said, Roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop. Pursue your enemies. Attack them from the rear and don't let them reach their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So what we're told is, rather than pause during the battle to deal with the five kings, Joshua just has them blocked in and guarded in the cave. He'll worry about them later. The pressing concern is to stop their armies from just retreating back to their cities. Joshua wants them finished off. So he doesn't have to fight them all over again in the future. But now we fast forward to the end of the battle. The point when Joshua returns to the cave 
finally, to deal with the five kings. And let's read that final part again from verse 22. Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Achish, and Eglon. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. Then Joshua put the kings to death and exposed their bodies in five poles and they were left hanging on the poles until evening. At sunset, Joshua gave the order and they took them down from the poles and threw them into the cave where they had been hiding. At the mouth of the cave, they placed large rocks which are there to this day. If we look at these verses by themselves, they're just grisly. But in the context of the whole Bible, this is a foreshadowing of God's great victory. If we start here with the scene in front of us, this is clearly a deliberate thing Joshua does. He calls the Israelite leaders to place their feet on the king's necks. And we know that's a symbolic action because when the kings are actually executed, it's only Joshua who does it. Then their bodies are exposed in public, just like the king of Ai was back in chapter 8. But the thing for us to realize here is that what Joshua does is intended to teach us something. It's been called an acted parable. On one level, this is to show Israel that God will defeat all her other enemies too. Joshua actually says that in verse 25. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you're going to fight. So this feet on the necks thing is to give courage to Israel. And it's to strike more fear into Israel's enemies. This was actually a common thing in the ancient world. It was a standard way of showing a person had been defeated. You put your foot on their neck. But if we step back and think about the whole storyline of the Bible, this has even greater significance. We've already noticed Joshua means the Lord saves. At this time in history, Joshua is the savior God has appointed for his people. And as God's people place their feet on their enemies here, we're reminded of a promise God made long, long before this. Back in the Garden of Eden. In Eden, the greatest enemy of God and his people led Adam and Eve into sin. But on that occasion, God made a promise in Genesis chapter 3. He said that one day, a descendant of Eve would crush the serpent's head. And in the New Testament, that promise returns. In Paul's letter to the Romans, we're told, 
the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's a reaffirmation of God's promise back in the Garden of Eden. And notice what Paul says, it's the God of peace who will do this crushing. That seems like an odd combination. But it shows us there can be no true peace until evil is finally crushed. The peace that comes from ignoring evil is a false peace. And so the God of peace will crush evil. One day every last enemy of God will be crushed. That peace will be brought about by God's appointed leader, the ultimate Joshua, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians looks forward to a day when he has finally put all his enemies under his feet. Then and only then will there be true peace. So here in our passage, the first Joshua defeating these local enemies is actually foreshadowing the victory of the second Joshua. The New Testament says Jesus began to reign at his resurrection. And he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. I hope it's clear you and I are not called to repeat what Joshua did here. That is not the application. But as we read this, we can look forward to what Jesus is going to do. His final victory over Satan and death and every other enemy. These things took place for our instruction and our encouragement. And until that final day, even the worst offenders have hope. Yes, our passage shows the terrible defeat of God's enemies. But it also shows the salvation of his enemies. The Gibeonites cried out for salvation. And they found a wholehearted Savior. Today an even greater salvation is available. Brought by an even greater Savior. If you don't know him as your Savior, now is the time to come to him. The God who saved back in Joshua's day is the same yesterday, today and forever. The God we see at work in this passage is the God who's still at work today. And we're going to praise him together as we sing, Great is thy faithfulness.